Again, we've been looking for the last several weeks at the last week of Jesus's life and ministry. And I've told you, Mark chapter 11 through 15 covers seven days. It's the literal last week of Jesus's ministry here on earth. And all of it's very deeply connected. And today we're going to be reading a passage that details some of the Tuesday of that week. And it's just a few days away from his crucifixion. Now, all of the things that have transpired, which I'll remind you of here in a little bit, the religious leaders have been observing Jesus do these things, and they're deeply disturbed by his words and his actions. And so in the text that we're studying now, they come up to confront him, and we know that's going to be a bad day for them and a good day for Jesus. So with that said, let's go ahead and start in verse 27, Mark chapter 11. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, Mm. and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? What shall we say, from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Park right there. I love the wisdom of Jesus. You should at least get a little smile out of that one. All right. Chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. Now, this is connected to this whole account, okay? So you have to follow. He's going to tell them a parable. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. And he had one more to send, a beloved son, and he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and take the inheritance, it will be ours. And they took him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers, and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. In Pentecostal and charismatic circles, we sometimes use this word, a religious spirit. Have you ever heard this term shared before? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if you've used this term before, but it's something that I've heard for quite a long time. And I have to be really honest with you today, although I would consider myself first just a son, I would consider myself a Christian, um, I would consider myself by distinction Pentecostal charismatic. I don't know what people are talking about half the time when they say a religious spirit. Can I get an amen? Amen. I just don't know. It's, it's It's an amazing thing that sometimes in church we make comments, we say things, and we act like everybody knows what we're talking about. And the fact is, 
we don't always know what everyone is saying. And so I want to define my terms. As I'm talking to you today about the marks of a religious spirit, I think it's important that you at least know what I'm referring to. This is what I mean when I say religious spirit. I am talking about a demonic strategy that demons have used for thousands of years to seduce people into a way of thinking and acting that honors a form of spirituality but is distorted at best or downright opposite of biblical spirituality at worst. And I think the Apostle Paul describes it well when he spoke to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to what he says. But realize this, Timothy, that in the last days, difficult times are going to come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now look at this, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Everybody say form. Holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. Paul is describing the influence of a religious spirit. The Greek word here for form is morphosis, and it means form, outline, and it's referring to an appearance of something. In the Greek world, which is where they borrowed a lot of their concepts in this language, it's an alphanumeric language. It has word pictures attached to it. When you said morphosis in Greek, sometimes in their mythology, in the worshiping of other gods, they would often use this word for one of their gods who would shapeshift from whatever they were into something else. In other words, they would shift into a different form to appear one way when they were entirely something different, morphosis. This is the form, a form they would be able to do. And so this is something that was in their mind. And the word for deny, it means to utterly deny, and it's used all over the Bible. For example, when Peter denied Jesus, he denied that he even knew him. Now, I want you to think about those references. Now, let me say they take on, they hold to a form of godliness, but they deny the power. They're absolutely okay with it appearing one way when it's actually something entirely different. They can have all of this corruption. Remember the list that he read, lovers of self and lovers of pleasure and conceited. All of this stuff is inside of them. And so they appear on the outside like they're one way, like they're religious and they're great. And they want everybody to think all of this stuff about them, but they're actually corrupt on the inside. And you know what Paul says to Timothy? He says, avoid such men as these. Now that doesn't sound like a message from our sponsor, does it? To describe this tendency today, we use words like hypocrisy, religious pride, falsehood. However, we have to recognize, friends, that there is a demonic influence as old as Satan that will accommodate this tendency in us to appear one way and actually be another. I just want to tell you, it's alive and well today. That tendency is still around. And here, here's my message. I want us to discern that influence. I want us to avoid that influence. I want us to be able to recognize that influence. And here's the reality is some people will say, well, Pastor Ben, no, that's just the flesh of a man or a woman. That's just pride. That's just some kind of fleshly desire. Friends, tell me this. 
If it's not demonic, then how could people that spent their entire lives studying to know the Messiah, and then when he came, they couldn't even recognize him, and they went to the point where they were willing to murder him. You cannot look me in the face and say that that is not demonic. They murdered Jesus. They wanted to seize him, arrest him, murder him, remove him, and go on with business as usual. That is demonic to the core, and you might say, well, I don't know anything about that. Well, here's what Jesus said, though. Jesus said that we all are vulnerable to the little substance that we see in the fullness as we observe the Pharisees. He said this to them in the book of Mark, chapter 8 and verse 15, to his disciples while they're on a boat going to the other side. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Do you remember that? He said, watch out. You need to beware of this. You need to discern this. You need to be able to recognize this because the same thing that you can see in them, it starts with a little substance. And when you put it into something, it starts to permeate it. It starts to take root and take hold. And then it fills out that entire person. And yes, we can observe it in the religious leaders in these passages. But friends, Jesus said, watch out that it doesn't come knocking at your door. You and I have to have discernment. And I think church history shows us, friends, that there is a religious spirit that's at work from the Old Testament to the Gospels to the starting of the new church. And all throughout history, we see that it is not just men. It's not just women. It's not just our ability to set up structures, that there is a demonic strategy, even working against the people of God to coerce us, to compel us, to seduce us into appearing one way when we're actually something entirely different. And we want to reject all that that brings. And I want to look at this passage in that, with that filter, because I think there are some marks of a religious spirit and will help us to avoid uh, all of its influence in, in our life. And so let's look first at our point in verse 27. The religious leaders tested Jesus. Look at this. They came again to Jerusalem And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they began saying, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? See, the religious leaders were disturbed by all of the things that Jesus had been doing the last couple days. And I'll just highlight four of them. The first, he allowed the crowds to declare openly that he was the Messiah. They did not uh, like that. They even told him to stop. Don't you see what they're doing? He said, if I tell them to stop, the rocks are going to cry out. And I, got, I gave you a great joke. Some of the other services missed it. I'm not sure. I might have been the 9 a.m. I said, that would have been the first rock and roll concert. See, half of you didn't laugh, but enough of you did. It made me feel like you were inviting me into something with you. No, that's not, no. I could see a couple of your faces are like, that's all right. I got more. (laughs) Number two, he cleared the temple of all the merchant business that the temple leaders were profiting from. Remember that? Jesus said, this is is to be a house of prayer for all the, this is his father's house. He cleared the temple. He declared the activity of the temple and its leadership entirely corrupt. Do you remember that? He said, this has become a robber's den. The temple leaders were right there. They were in charge of this enterprise. This is a robber's den. A robber's den is a place where thieves feel safe. Can you imagine saying that about the church? Northwest Church is a robber's den. It is a place where the thieves of this region feel safe. 
<laughs> no, this is a place where thieves transform and change. Amen. And so Jesus was saying, this has become a robber's den. It's entirely different than what it's supposed to be to be. That's what he said. And the fourth thing, he began teaching in the temple and the crowds were coming to him, not to the religious leaders, not to the scribes who were the ones that taught the law. They were coming to Jesus. And the Bible says they were amazed at all that he was saying. And could you imagine how irate the religious leaders would be? Like the people don't come to us and they don't want to hear from us. And you can see it on their face. They're not interested in our teaching, but they're all amazed when Jesus starts to teach in the temple. And so they were angry at all of this, they were furious because Jesus was walking around like he owned the place. And friends, you know why? It's because he did. <laughs> Who gave you this authority? You're walking around like you own this joint. And Jesus was like, that's right. <laughs> Their question, by what authority are you doing this? Or, or we could put it this way. Why are you defying the temple leadership? Why are you defying the ones that are actually in charge? You're not in charge. We're in charge. Who gives you the right? Why do you think that you can do this? The fact is, they were asking him this question, hoping that he would say, God is my authority. They wanted him to say that because if he said, God is my authority, they could accuse him, they could arrest him, and they could remove him, and they would go back to business as usual, corruption to its full extent, its full strength. That is what they wanted. They were not interested in God. They were not interested in truth. They were not interested to see if Jesus was who everybody thought he was and now is saying that he is. The religious leaders were dishonest and corrupt to the core, and that's why Jesus proclaimed judgment upon them. The second point we see is Jesus responds to them. Jesus tested the religious leaders. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they began reasoning among themselves. Check this out. You know, they, they had to push off from Jesus. And so they, you know, kind of a weird thing to do, don't you think? It's like on Shark Tank. It's like, let us talk about what you're offering here. And they, they sort of go away, or there's a new show I'm watching now. It's like, buy my house. Have you seen that? I don't recommend it. Anyhow, <laughs> it's not good. Uh, they begin reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say. See, they're already anticipating what Jesus is going to He will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men, they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. But answering Jesus has said, you know what? We don't know. And Jesus said, well, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I'm doing these things either. See, they're trying to trap Jesus, and he's not evading or avoiding their question. He's employing wisdom, and I just love that about Jesus. He always knows what to say. And friend, if you don't know what to say, you can go to the scriptures because he knows what to say. And I love that John the Baptist was just as much a conundrum for the religious leaders as Jesus was. John did all kinds of things that infuriated them. For example, in Mark chapter one, I'll remind you, John came and he started preaching a baptism of repentance. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he baptized 
thousands of people. The Bible says all of Judea came out to see him at the River Jordan. Can you imagine they're at the River Jordan? People are streaming down the banks. The religious leaders are on the banks and they're watching this happen. They're not engaging, but they are observing and they're going, what in the world is going on right now? Who is this crazy person? And why are all these people streaming into the river? And it says they were confessing their sins publicly. Oh man, we should go back to that, shouldn't we? When you're being baptized, we baptized like 10 or 11 people this weekend. We don't have any at the 9 a.m. We got a lot at the 11.30, sorry guys, but it's gonna be awesome. We baptized five people last night. I was like, what if we asked all of our baptism candidates to confess all their sins publicly? Wouldn't that be just a wonderful gathering together with the saints of God? And you know, maybe in our modern day, we wouldn't ask them to do it publicly. They could write us an email in advance and we could scroll it up on the screen. How about we put together a little movie, huh? a little movie clip of all the things that they've done so when they're baptized, we're really getting them clean in Jesus' name. You like that? I don't know if we'd baptize very many people. <laughs> the next business meeting we have, our yearly annual members meeting, would be like, yep, we baptized two people this year, and it was my kids, both of them. That was it. <laughs> Nobody else was interested. <laughs> we baptized them twice, so there's four up there. I don't know. So John was a conundrum. When Jesus brought up his baptism, he knew what he was doing because they didn't engage. They observed and all these others were engaging. There were baptisms that they were familiar with in Judaism. There were two baptisms that wasn't the baptism of John. The first was a purification baptism. Before someone would go worship at the temple, they would visit what was called a mikvah. There's a couple different ways of saying this, but a mikvah was a small pool that was dug out of the rock of the ground, and it was a regular purification ritual before someone would go and worship at the temple. This was normal in Jewish community. They were used to that. They were also used to what was called a proselyte baptism. And this is where a non-Jewish person decided to devote their life to Yahweh God. And so they were saying, I want to worship Yahweh. I'm convinced that he's the one and true God. And in order to be part of this community, they had to do three things. If they were a male, they had to be circumcised. All of them had to renounce all of their former gods. And the third part is they had to be baptized. Now, they would use a mikvah to do this, but this baptism was saying, I am renouncing all of my old life and I'm entering into the Jewish community. It was a proselyte baptism for non-Jewish people. Here's what John the Baptist does. John the Baptist comes and preaches to Jews almost something that looks like a proselyte baptism. And so they're all offended. Like, why in the world are you preaching this baptism of repentance? We are Jews. And so they were on the bank and they didn't engage in anything that John was doing. They were utterly offended by it. And then John actually called out the Pharisees as a brood of vipers. Who warned you about what was coming in the age ahead? He called them out. And so they were obviously upset about this, and this made it all around the region, John and who he was. And so when Herod killed John, they were happy. That's the truth. Religious leaders were happy when John was killed. And so Jesus brings this up. And as we see from the text, they did not want to answer this question because they were afraid of the people because the people believed that he was a prophet. And Jesus knew what he was doing. And so their answer to him was, we don't know. Hey, man, we don't know. All right, we're going to plead agnosticism. <laughs> 
Oh, and John was really something, but we're not sure what that man was. So we're going to be ignorant or plead the fifth. They claimed ignorance. They didn't want accountability. But here's the third point. Jesus revealed the truth of their hearts. The religious leaders sought to trap him, and instead they were exposed before the people. And although Jesus said that he wouldn't answer their question about authority, he actually did. But remember in the book of Mark, because all of this comes together, Jesus said in Mark 4 and verse 11 that he would speak plainly to the disciples, but he would speak to everyone else in what? In parables. And so Jesus is being sneaky. He said to them, I'm not going to tell you by what authority, but then he does what? He goes and tells them by what authority. He just does it in a parable. Now, I don't want to read all 12 verses to you again, so let me just summarize that parable for you. He tells a story of a landowner who planted a vineyard and leased it to some tenants. And in time, the landowner sent multiple servants to receive from the harvest. This was called crop sharing. This was normal. They all saw vineyards. It's normal to see vineyards where they lived. It's normal to have crop sharing a business and to have tenants if you were to go away and you were a landowner. In the time, the landowner sent the multiple servants and they, the tenants beat and even killed those servants. Finally, the landowner sent his own son and the tenants, listen, they thought this, let's kill him. He is the heir to all that we are stewarding. And if we kill him, then all of this is ours. And Jesus was exposing exactly what was in their hearts. They said they didn't know who John was. They acted like they didn't know who Jesus was. They were forcing him to try to say who he was. But you know what? They didn't care. They didn't care. In the parable, it says, hey, here's the son. It's as if Jesus is saying, you know who I am, and you are unwilling to yield yourself to my authority. That's what Jesus was doing in the parable because he's telling them, you are going to kill the son because you want all of this more than you want God. Friends, I am telling you, a demonic spirit is at work in that type of thinking. Can you say amen? And I don't want it in our thinking. Amen. I see this in there. So here's what the parable means. The landowner is God. The vineyard is Israel. The tenants are the rulers of Israel, who he's talking to. The servants were the prophets, and they did kill many of them. And the son is Jesus Christ. And the parable ends with Psalm 118, verse 22. And he says, the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. They knew this was a messianic prophecy. It had come, it had come to know, they had come to know it from this perspective. And Jesus is saying, this is fulfilled right here and right now. I am the cornerstone. And they were utterly offended. And it says in the text uh, that they were just wanting an opportunity to seize him and remove him and get rid of him, but they were afraid of the people. Wow. He revealed their hearts. He revealed they didn't want God. He revealed they were interested in money. They were interested in status. They were interested in power, and they were using religion to get what they wanted. Friends, that is corruption to the full, and we've seen it even in our time. His question, Jesus's question about John's baptism was helping him to reveal the rejection that they had toward him. It revealed their heart. There is a demonic power at work influencing the religious leaders. This is what I'm calling a religious spirit. That might not be the right term for it. I don't wanna overuse terms like this, but I think it's important that we at least define the term. And there are marks 
of that religious spirit that we can discern and observe. And I wanna share four of them with you right now. The first is this. We see from the text that they were guardians of their truth rather than seekers of God's truth. That is absolutely what we observe. And here's the deal. Can we also have that tendency in our life as well? Friends, even in our times, we're right and everyone else is wrong. We know the Bible better than everybody. Our interpretation is God's interpretation. Now, this might come with an ouch, but let me say it to you. I've said it before. If God always agrees with me, then maybe it is that I have made my mind God rather than his word and who he is. You could say ouch. That was a murmur. Here's the deal. When we hear something that we're not familiar with, we go study. When we hear something that we're not, that we're not sure about, we go study. We're not the source. The Bible is the source. And so we don't have to come up with the answers all the time. We just, you know what? I'm not sure about what you're saying, but here's what I do know. I know what this is. This is true. Here's the truth. Friends, that's what we have to learn to get better at. But there is a tendency inside of us to do what they did where we're guardians of the truth, which presupposes that we know everything, that we know everything, that we're more concerned about being right all the time than seekers of God's truth. How many of you would say, I'm a lifelong learner of the words and the ways of Jesus Christ? How many of you know it all? Come on, I almost got you. <laughs> there was a couple of you. Oh, no, I, I don't. I don't think so. I don't. I mean, I know more than he does. I just, that's <laughs> right. Disciples are learners of the words and the ways of Jesus. The religious spirit accommodates and influences us to resist discipleship. Here's the question that I have. What does your discipleship look like? And I'm not asking, what is your discipleship in someone else's life for them look like? What about you? Who speaks into you? Who is helping shape you? Who has the right to say something to you? You know what you see in their life? Nobody did. And isn't it amazing? Just go with me on these thoughts. When you think about there's an influence outside of just being human, if that's true, which I believe is true, isn't it interesting that all of these groups of people could conspire together against Jesus? So many people couldn't get along together, but all of a sudden they're all on the same page to kill someone. That's demonic. That's demonic. Let's do whatever it takes. And so you'd say, well, Ben, I don't even think like that. That's, that's not very practical for me. I'm not talking about in its fullest measure. I'm saying there are seeds. Leaven can start to influence us. I'm right and everybody else is wrong. I started thinking about how popular it is today. Now you got to follow me. How popular it is today for so many people to not disciple anybody, not share the gospel, not even have a good life and yet they can pop up a YouTube channel and get on social media, and all of a sudden they're a prophet, they're a teacher, and they're profound. And people will share their videos without knowing the condition of their heart. Do you know how many videos get sent to me? And the first question that I have is, do you know this person? No, no, no. In Israel, the teachers of the law had corrupt hearts, but a lot of the times they did have some right teaching. 
And Jesus came and proclaimed judgment on them. Was it because they didn't, they didn't have right teaching or was it because of the corruption of their life? Remember when he cursed the fig tree? May nobody ever eat fruit from you again. He was talking about the temple leadership. Jesus takes it very seriously that we wouldn't just have words. It's not just the name of Jesus on our lips. It's the nature of Jesus in our hearts. This is important, friends. I want to encourage you to not listen to online prophets and teachers when you don't know their life. And please hear what I have to say. So many people are consumed with all of these teachings, watching all of this stuff online and social media, sending it to everyone else. Hey, did you see what this person said? No, I didn't. How many people have asked me, have you been to Bethel? No, I haven't been to Bethel. Well, they're terrible. Okay, I'm just trying to pastor the church God gave me. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't have time to figure out who's out there deceiving everybody. I'm just praying to God that we're not. Can you help me here? You understand what I'm saying? It's like, I don't have time to figure out all the social media prophets and online prophets. I just know that I'm going to shut it all down before election time comes as that was embarrassing. No, I'm serious. They can have all this corruption. You say, well, Ben, how do all these people fall from these great places and platforms that they had for years? Maybe they never were living it to begin with. Maybe they appeared one way, but they were actually entirely something else, like the Greek gods. They were shapeshifters, and they weren't in a community. That's why I will never allow anybody to stand on this stage and preach to us if they are not embedded in a local church. If they're not somebody where they know people and they're known by people, they do not have the right to speak to us. Come on, they don't have the right to speak to us. I'm not inviting somebody because they're gifted. There's a lot of gifted people. There's a lot of people that God gives gifts to, but it doesn't mean that they're rooted and they're real and they're known. If you don't have real relationships with people, you can get away with all kinds of stuff, can't you? You can. You can. That's why this group of people found this camaraderie in their one desire to get rid of Jesus because they had given themselves over to corruption. Misery loves company, and that's what you see here. There's something demonic at its core. Number two, they lived by the fear of man rather than the fear of God. This is a whole sermon right here. I'm just gonna take a moment, come on. Their words and their actions were controlled and compelled by how others would see them, not how God saw them. They were willing to be dishonest so they could preserve their position and their power. They were willing to lie to everyone else, even though they were teachers of the word and they were willing to lie so that other people thought a certain way about them, but they weren't any of that. And you know something's wrong when you and I are willing to be dishonest to people about what we really are, where we really are, what we're really saying, and what we're really doing. We're willing to be dishonest. We're doing that before God so that we can gain something before other people. Wouldn't it be amazing if all of us just decided today, I'm going to the best of my ability, live clean and free before God and be exactly who I am, where I am. And if people that disappoints that now indiscretion, all right, indiscretion, all right, you hear me extreme, I know it. But if people can't handle the truth of where and what we really are and God can, isn't that something? 
If our goal is to become like Jesus and we come to him because he has grace, but we can't come to each other because we don't, friends, we need the fear of God. I'm not talking about being scared of God. Nobody wants to be scared of God. He doesn't want us to be scared of him. He wants us to have this reverential awe where what we do and what we say is before him and not just before other people. Not to live a life that's fake and fraudulent so that we can make other people think a certain way about us. That kind of control is not real. And so we construct these stories that we tell ourselves and that we tell everyone else so that we can be seen a certain way. That there is a religious spirit that would love to accommodate our flesh that wants to feel loved and wanted and celebrated. And there's some health in those things, but it gets exacerbated or becomes more than it should. And it starts to feed something in us that doesn't deserve to eat. And we become other than what God intends. I wanna li- we want to live before the fear of God, the fear of God. I've given you this illustration before, but it's, it's, it's one of the best I have. Okay. I'm sorry. My wife's going to be here next service. And if I were to tell a story and I were to start exaggerating, you know, just try to pump people up, you know, just kind of hype it up. And there was this thing and it was like, it was like the biggest thing in the world. And she's over there like, what are you talking? Was I there? And I start to exaggerate and pump it up and start, you know, I start to say all of this stuff. And my wife's on the front row because she knows me. She's my 24 hour accountability. (laughs) That was a little too much excitement there. All right. (laughs) Marriage is like surveillance, you know, partially. (laughs) And so so I start to talk all this stuff. And then, you know, we're going to drive home today and she's going to say, hey, remember when you were telling that story? Big guy, remember that? Yeah, that was really exciting. You were really amped. You were really excited about that story. Was I there? And I go, yeah, remember? She goes, no, I don't remember. No, no. What I remember was, I mean, you were talking like this, but it was more like, it was more like this. It was, it was, you know, it was like that. Okay. All right. Big guy. Yeah. Really excited. wonder if that was called lying. Okay. No, I mean, I was just, I was just excited. No, I'm wondering if that's called lying. That's what that is. And so what I love is the longer that we've been married, the more I have this respect for the truth in the presence of my wife. And I stay within that pocket because, I, number one, I want to be clean. I want to be truthful. But we all, I'm, friend, I'm telling you, we have this tendency to say things and do things to make ourselves appear better and more. I'm not asking for a show of hands. It's just true. And so when I live in a way where I'm mindful of my wife, knowing she knows the truth, it helps to bring things down to that truthful level because she suffers no fools, including this one. I'm telling you the truth today. And the reality is this, is what if we could live before God and the way that we live and the way that we speak is not just about the accountability of others. It's not to get something from others or to be a certain way in front of anyone else, but before God. That's clean, isn't it? That's so clean. The religious leaders were so far past that. There was another voice speaking in their life. There was another voice accommodating their flesh. There was another voice compelling them. Can't control them, but compelling them. Yeah, this is what you want to seize them, arrest them, accuse them, kill them. And this is what we're talking about is that same spirit is going to manifest in fullness and embody a personality one day called the spirit of Antichrist. John said this in 1 John. He said, the spirit of Antichrist is already at work 
in the world. And you know what's funny? This is like Halloween weekend. Uh, should I do this? Okay, here's something. I feel like it's easier for us to focus on these things that we consider darkness, when in reality, what really is killing and hurting people are a lot of the things that we're talking about right here. What killed Jesus? Was it a Halloween party? I know you're saying, well, Ben, that doesn't, you know, doesn't fully apply. I know, I, just hear me, just hear me. The enemy does not want you and I to see him. He represents himself as an angel of light. Hollywood has made this thing so that we get, Christians get distracted and irate. Now, I don't want my kids dressing up like goblins and stuff, but the reality is, and they don't, <laughs> you know, we have a hard enough time with the manifestations in the morning, you know, <laughs> you know how it is, so, you, you know, it's, it's funnier if you have more kids, but like, what even is in your tree? Early on, you try to cast it out. You realize it ain't coming out. <laughs> you got to disciple that thing out. You can't cast everything out. You know, all right. Um, I shouldn't have started this. That's what happened. <laughs> I got a couple of yes in this section. I don't know. But, but the, angel, the, the angel of light, he comes as an angel of light. Oh, it, to even seduce us, tempt us, blind us. And that's, it's what we see. Number three is they were resistant to what God was doing so they could maintain position and power. Surely John's baptism can't be from God because it's not how we do things. Surely John's baptism and Jesus is preaching. Surely Jesus can't be the Messiah because he's not, he doesn't look like the person we thought he would because our teaching is right. A religious spirit will always honor what God did in the past while resisting what he is doing or being blind to what God is doing in the present. Number four, they were dead wrong. You see that in capitals? They were dead wrong in their motives, words, actions, and we can't afford the same. The Son of God came to them, but they did not yield to his authority, and this would lead to their death. Paul said this. Now, pay attention. This is what Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8. He said to the Corinthian church, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age... Who's he talking about? He's talking about the rulers, the religious leaders in this story. He said, the wisdom that we're preaching, that we're talking to you about, none of the rulers of this age have understood. For if they understood it, if they saw it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the religious leaders knew what they thought they knew, could see who was in front of them, if they weren't influenced by what was trying to coerce and compel them, if they truly saw what they had right in front, they would not have done what they did. That is, isn't that interesting? You know what that's a reference to? Blindness, darkness, blindness. That's what he's talking about. I wonder how many things we would do different if we truly understood what God was doing. The question that we have to ask is what does his word say and what is God doing? Because we are never the source. His word is the source. His spirit is the source. The person of Jesus is the source, but we don't know everything. And this is where they got caught up. This is where they got bound. And I just wanna be honest to you today. I should probably join a small group because my name is Ben and I have some religious tendencies sometimes that can move towards legalism. And the Lord, by his grace, has to keep pulling me back. Can you say amen? Just, that was just for me, not you. How come the longer we're Christians, 
the more tempting that can become. We forget where we come from. We forget what God has done in our life. We forget what God is doing. We, for, we forget that the Bible is the source and not us. We forget that we're lifelong learners of Jesus. We forget that God doesn't need us to be his watchdogs, always telling everybody else how wrong they are. If we just focused on the advancement of his kingdom, sharing his good news, discipling people, we wouldn't have to focus so much on all these other things. I do not understand our world today and how many ministries are focused on what God doesn't do and what God hasn't said. And you know what I think? I think it's smokescreen of the reality is that we have lost our ability to disciple. That's what I think. We're all talking about how bad it is and how dark it is. And then disciple people. <laughs> Jesus said, here's the great commission, great capital, great. Go and make disciples, disciple them out of darkness, show them the way of Jesus, teach them everything that I told you, help them to obey it. Stop focusing on the darkness because the light has come. Jesus is calling us to something and he's given it to us. Why is it so easy for me, for you, for us to focus on other things? Because there is a religious spirit at work in the world. And this is what's set against even the people of God. Now, I have a shotgun blast for you today before we have some nice music that's going to accommodate my closing. I don't know if you're ready for it. I don't, I don't know if I'm ready to share it. But I wrote down 13 things that are not on your notes. And these are outside of the text because I want to teach the text, okay? And I want to share what I believe it says. But I wrote down 13 things that I think are marks of a religious spirit. So if the shoe fits, take them off and get a new pair. Are you ready for 13 things? I got to do this in like three minutes. It's coming anyways. All right. Number one, we believe a primary mission of ours is to tear down the wrong beliefs of others. I already talked about that. Number two, we are unable to receive correction, especially from people we deem less spiritual than us. Number three, we believe that we don't need to listen to people because we only listen to God. Number four, we usually see and speak more about what is wrong with others and other churches than what is good. Number five, we struggle with and often project a level of spirituality that we can't measure up to ourselves, nor can anyone else. Number six, we keep score on our spiritual life, even if we don't tell other people that we do. Number seven, we feel that God has put us where we are to help everyone else. And in every sphere of our life, we are the mentor and never the mentee, which makes it very hard for us to receive. Number eight, we have a low margin and little grace for when other people sin, fail, or show any sign of weakness. Number nine, we feel like our spiritual life is superior to others because of what we do and what they don't do, or let me add, what we perceive they don't do because we usually don't know. We just think that because they show weakness, they must not be reading their Bible or praying or doing all the things that we are surely doing. It's a lot of judgment. I got a couple more. You ready? All right, number 10. We have a tendency to do things and make sure others see it 
or at least know about it. Number 11, we have a tendency to be suspicious of others when they are doing well, growing, or testifying about what God has done. It's where somebody testifies, he set me free of of alcoholism, and our mind says, well, I really hope that sticks. Well, brother so-and-so, I'm glad to hear that. We'll be praying for, I really hope that uh, everything's okay, and maybe that, maybe, I hope so. See, we could turn that into a prayer, but instead it's a suspicion. Suspicion is a sign. Number 12, we have a tendency to reject things that we haven't experienced and we don't understand. Since we haven't experienced it, it must not be from God, right? Since we've never heard that before and and since it doesn't explicitly say it in the Bible, even though the Bible doesn't speak against that, we make up our own rules. And so, hey, it's only got to be in the Bible. Well, don't drive your car, okay? Because there's no cars in the Bible. And there are a lot of things. We have to look at what the Bible speaks against, okay? Contradictions, incongruencies. But if I haven't experienced it, if I haven't seen it, it must not be from God. I want to tell you, that is such a profound religious pride. There are a lot of things, especially as I've traveled to other countries and ministered among many other people and languages, I have learned so many things that I did not know and how God moves in people all over the world. And I have a choice. Either there's something wrong with them or there's something I could grow in. And the last is we can see plenty of wrong with others, but we just don't seem to see it much in ourselves. Say, how can I pray for you? Well, you know... uh, Man, just pray that God would open a door. It's never any more vulnerable than an opportunity or, hey, you know, we all got problems. We have to find friends, people that we know in this life, that know our hearts, that we can be honest with, so that when we share and that when we pray, we're not Superman and Superwoman. We don't have to avoid, we don't have to shield, we don't have to guard. We've got to know people and let them know. We have to have these relationships. It actually protects us from the influence of other things and other people. It really does. Spiritual warfare is not just you and I getting in a room screaming at the devil. I mean, that is no form of Pentecostalism that I believe in. I don't believe in any of that. You can't just yell at disembodied spirits. In fact, when you look at the apostolic prayers, just read the prayers in the Bible. Don't take my word for it. Just read the prayers. Every time people prayed in the New Testament, isn't it interesting that they never prayed against the devil, but they always prayed for God to do something because if God moved, it would displace whatever the enemy was doing. We didn't just pray again. Just, and cha- I challenge you, read the prayers. The only one I can find was in Acts chapter four where they acknowledged that Pontius Pilate and others and the rulers of this world, according to Psalm chapter two, were afflicting them and affecting them. Just said, take note of their threats, Lord, but now pour out your spirit and give us boldness to preach the gospel. And that's exactly what God did. So as far as I can tell, friends, there is a spiritual influence in the world today that is set against us, and we don't want to be porous to it. We want to be resistant to that and open to the Lord. You say, well, Ben, what's the practicality of this sermon? That's a great question. I wish I could get more practical on every sermon. When you go through the book of the Bible, a book of the Bible is hard. But here's what I would tell you. We have to ask God for discernment, number one. And number two, we have to be people that are humble 
and always repentant whenever we recognize things that have a tendency to hurt our relationship with God and hurt our ministry and relationship with other people. We have to be repentant. We have to be humble. So when you see it, when you feel it, when you sense it, when you're convicted by it, repent of it just like that. And Jesus, he's so good. His kindness leads us to repentance. It's a daily thing where he cleanses our hearts, not just of the foolishness and the sin in our life, but also from the influences that are trying to creep in. And maybe we can't even see them. Maybe we can't even see them. We want to see them. Is that right? Would you stand as we close? Oh, I don't know what you're going to say to your friend or your spouse on the way home. Man, that was really good about the religious spirit. I don't know. I don't know. But there's a sober reality to what we face. Is that right? There's a sober reality. Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. We wrestle. That's not going to stop. We're going to wrestle. Can't just cast it all out. You're not going to have a trouble-free life. We're going to wrestle with principalities and powers, but we walk in the victory of Jesus. And we do that through humility as we follow him. He overcomes. I had some words I wanted to share with you today as we close. The first is, uh, as I pray in the morning, we have pre-service prayer. We would love to have you join us at 8 a.m. in the chapel. But as we pray, we want to share what we feel like the Holy Spirit puts in our hearts that are specific for the body of Christ as we gather. Number one is I just had this sense that somebody here today in the 9 a.m. service, you've lost a family member and your heart aches today. It just, it's true, like not just every day, but today, there's an ache in your heart today and it feels too much. Just, it just feels heavy. And this sermon probably didn't help because <laughs> it's not necessarily what you need. But the Lord says to you today, he is what you need and he has what you need. And here's the sense that I had as I prayed over you, that the Lord sees you, he knows the pain that's in your life. And even if you want the pain gone, the fact is what you really need is Jesus in the middle of the pain. You might be asking for the pain to go and you woke up with more of it than you wanted, but the Lord's saying, I'm enough, I'm with you in the pain and he's got you, he sees you today. And that was very important for you just simply to know that. I wanna pray for you um, in a minute. By the way, we all have pain and we all go through things. The second was I prayed for somebody who's been having pain in their legs, like actual physical pain, and I saw your shins, and I know this is kind of funny to bring up, but you, you have a lot of pain when you walk upstairs. I don't know if they call that shin splints, or I, I don't know the technical term. I, I have to defer to my doctor friend over here and the nurses in the room, but uh, something about your shins, and I just pray healing in the name of Jesus. You have some pain, real pain in your legs, and we're praying for healing over you today in just a moment. And the last thing is you came here, someone came here today and you just don't feel like you have a place or you belong, and it's been kind of hanging over you for some uh, time, and the truth is that you do. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because I felt like the Lord was showing me that there were lies in your pocket that you walk around with. And I had this picture where you took, a, there were just like three of them. There were just three of them. You take them out and you look at them, and then you kind of put them back in your pocket and you just keep living life. You just keep walking around with these things. And every now and again, you put your hand back in there and you kind of go, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I feel. That's kind of what's going on in my, in my life. And I just want to tell you that you have overcoming power over that because it's a lie. You do belong. You do have place. And if I can be honest with you, most of us feel like we don't belong a lot of the time. <laughs> we feel odd or strange or different. And all of us are odd, strange, and different. 
And by God's grace, he figures out a way to put this puzzle together, calling it family. You have some lies in your pocket and I saw you put them on the table and the Lord just saying, you don't need those anymore. I wanna replace them with truth. How do you do that? I'm just gonna pray that God gives you the promises of his word, the truth of his word to replace the lie with this truth, amen? And I believe that's gonna stick in your mind today. You're gonna say, Lord, what is that truth? Pastor Ben doesn't know, (laughs) but the Lord knows and his word has it, amen. Pray with me, would you? Father, we thank you today in the name of Jesus. We come to you humbly and open. We ask you, Lord, to do your work. God, first, I pray for someone that's experiencing pain in their legs. And and I even pray healing over all of us who are in something right now where we need a miracle and we need the healing power of Jesus to touch us from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. And we thank you for every healing that we have seen you do in this church. And we ask you to do it again today. By your grace and by your power, would you do it again today? Father, I pray for that one who's experiencing an extra level of grief in the loss of a family member, and it feels like too much, and they woke up that way. Lord, I just pray that they would see you in the midst of where they are, and you would bring comfort, and you would bring healing to them today, and they would literally feel your affection. We don't just love you with our mind. We can actually feel your affection, just like we have that in all other things in life. I pray they would have that today. And then for the person that just is overwhelmed with the lie that I I don't belong, I don't matter, I'm not seen, it's not true. God, we pray today that you would replace lies with truth. I pray that in our mind, the truth of your word would come up to the surface and it would displace those things that are just simply not true. And Lord, we also pray that you would dismantle any influence of a religious spirit in our life and those tendencies that we have. And Lord, give us extra grace today to see people the way that you do, Lord, to interact with you in our relationship with you in a way, Lord, that just continues to grow and deepen in all that you intend. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.